2: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are
3: hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This
1: is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem.
4: G'day, space junkies. Welcome back to the Space Junk Podcast. It's your host here, Annie Handmer, perpetual PhD student and enthusiast about things generally. My life in lockdown is increasingly revolving around writing a PhD thesis and writing and illustrating a picture book for my nephew. It's hard to say which one of these projects displays more intellectual depth at this point. But this episode of the podcast is certainly intellectually weighty. On April the 6th, the US White House released an executive order on encouraging international support for the recovery and use of space resources. As might be expected, discussion on Twitter ensued, and the Space Junk podcast was suggested as a platform through which different views could be explored. The episode was duly recorded on April 11th, and as such, does not consider the subsequent Artemis Accord announcements, including the proposed safety zones, but is still an up-to-the-minute discussion and exploration of the broad topic of off-earth mining. The panellists are Gabriel Swinney, Attorney Advisor at the U.S. State Department, Chris Johnson, Space Law Advisor at the Secure World Foundation, Dr Malcolm Davis, Senior Analyst in Defence Strategy and Capability at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Associate Professor Alice Gorman at Flinders University College of Arts and Social Sciences, and Professor Stephen Freeland, Professor of International Law at Western Sydney University. This is a bit of a different episode to many of the others I've released in a couple of respects. The first is that this is panel content that is unique to the Space Junk podcast, which means that you are the first to hear it, unless you've watched the YouTube version already. The second is that Gabriel Swinney, Attorney Advisor to the US State Department, is very kindly speaking in his official capacity in this panel discussion, which is obviously quite unusual. All of the other panelists are speaking in their personal private capacity and all of their statements are their opinions and don't represent the organizations that they represent themselves. That was a mouthful, you get the gist. And finally, this episode has already been released in video form on my YouTube channel. So if you'd prefer to watch this discussion rather than just listen to it, you can head over there and find it by searching The Space Junk Podcast. I'd like to thank all the panelists for making themselves available in their different time zones and from assorted lockdown situations for this recording. And I hope that you enjoy it. Welcome back to Space Junk Podcast. I'm your host, Annie Hanmer, And today I have with me some of the world's brightest minds in the issue of space law. And on the discussion agenda today is the Executive Order on Encouraging International Support for the Recovery and Use of Resources that was released by the White House on the 6th of April, 2020. The people we've got discussing it today are fantastic. First up, we'll have Gabriel Swinney, Attorney Advisor to the US State Department. Then we've got Chris Johnson, Space Law Advisor at Secure World Foundation, and he also teaches the Space Law Seminar at Georgetown Law. Then we'll have Malcolm Davis, Senior Analyst in Defence Strategy and Capability at ASPE. Associate Professor Alice Gorman, who is an Associate Professor in the College of Arts and Social Sciences at Flinders University and a respected member of the Space Industry Association of Australia. And finally, Professor Stephen Freeland, a Professor of International Law at Western Sydney University and a member of the board of directors of the International Institute of Space Law. So without further ado, I'm going to kick things off by asking Gabriel to give us his initial thoughts.
2: Thanks, and Annie, thank you for pulling this all together. Um, This is a great group of people you've got here um, and a very timely discussion. Um, So hello everyone from my my basement. Um, And I I guess I should start by saying, um, this is the first time I've worn a buttoned shirt um, for I think three weeks. So um, I'm feeling very honored and so should you. Um, so the executive order on, on space resources, um, I'm sure that many of your listeners and viewers have, have read it by now. Um, and thank you, by the way, for putting together um, your short primer video on it as well. I think that's, if people haven't watched that, that would be a great thing to, to start off with because it really does hit many of the main points. I don't necessarily agree 100% with, with all the analysis, but I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent introduction um, to the issue. In terms of sort of how I see the executive order and why we, the US government, decided to, to issue it, um, is because we wanted to, to sort of bring clarity to a, a number of issues that had been suffering from, from our perspective sort of a frustrating lack of clarity um, for a number of years, frankly, uh, at least since 2015, since the issue of space resources really became a hot one in the international community, um, but more recently as well. Um, and to meet some operational needs that I'll talk about um, here in a few minutes. So um, as, I, as I guess I should have said, uh, I was involved in the the, spa- the executive order itself. So um, so I'm speaking in my official capacity here uh, on behalf of the U.S. government, or at least on behalf of the State Department. Um, the executive order, the first thing it does, I think, um, is it really reaffirms the, the centrality of the Outer Space Treaty. Right? Maybe that's something that's so simple that feels like it should go without saying, but we think it's critical to hit that point over and over again, because the Outer Space Treaty really is the, the touchstone for everything we do in outer space on the international side. It creates the fundamental set of rules under which we operate, tells us what we can and can't do. So we think it's critical when we're talking about something that hasn't actually happened yet, like space resource utilization, um, to, to start from the beginning, which from the legal perspective is the Outer Space Treaty. So it starts there. Um, and the Outer Space, you know, and the Outer Space Treaty provides a, a whole set of rules, some of which well, maybe we'll get into um, as we go on. But that has to be the starting point. The next thing the executive order does um, is talk about what the rules aren't. Right? We've started with the Outer Space Treaty, which is the set of rules. But what aren't the rules? Um, well, first of all, the Moon Agreement. The um, United States isn't a party to the, the Moon Agreement. Obviously, the, that agreement is, is binding on those countries, such as Australia, that are parties to the agreement. Um, But we we found it important to say, remind the world, not only are we not a party, but the provisions in the Moon Agreement don't represent any kind of rules that have somehow become binding or or particularly useful um, in terms of non-parties. The reason we felt like it was important to say that is because there has been a a movement, perhaps a quiet one, but I think uh, a vocal one over the past few years, Um, of scholars and a few states um, talking about the possibility that the Moon Agreement might become customary law or certain provisions of it, um, or that some provisions of it might be the sorts of things that we should build on as we move towards space resource utilization. And we really wanted to lay down a marker and say, um, we think that's legally wrong, um, and we don't see it as a useful policy starting point. Um, Part of that same conversation about what aren't the rules um, was a clear statement. By, uh, by the administration that we don't view outer space as a global commons. Uh, we can go into that in, in detail on what we meant maybe later. Um, but just very briefly, the idea of a global commons just isn't in the law, right? As a legal matter, the outer space treaty talks about um, exploration and use of outer space being the province of all mankind. So that's the legal, uh, that's the legal rule. Um, and so we think it's just legally incorrect to call outer space a global commons. And the idea of global commons um, just means a whole lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, and so the topic itself or the, the term itself um, is really deeply misleading or, or at the very least confusing. So we don't find it helpful. Um, and then the final thing uh, that I think I would, I would highlight is the next steps. the the executive order ends by emphasizing the importance of international partnerships and emphasizes by emphasizing the importance and directing the Secretary of State um, to reach out to foreign countries, to work with them, to develop statements, agreements, potentially binding multilateral or bilateral agreements um, on the issue of space resources. So this isn't the kind of thing where the United States is looking to go it alone. Um, it's the kind of thing where we are very much looking to go with friends, partners, and allies. Um, but we felt it was useful to set out um, the way we're thinking about these issues and to provide some clear policy direction um, for ourselves, frankly, moving forward. I'll stop there, but I know there's lots more we could talk about.
4: Thank you so much, Gabriel. That was extremely clear and helpful. I'll now cr- cross to Chris Johnson, who is, the, as I mentioned, the Space Law Advisor at the Secure World Foundation.
1: All right. Thank you. Uh, You know, I like the comments from Gabriel kind of explaining um, context and consequences of that executive order. I think that um, a few things I want to take even just a step back from the executive order and go back into some of the assumptions that we bring to some of these conversations. And uh, the the best that I can, uh, the best foot forward that I can put at this point is that I also bring some assumptions to how I read and interpret space law. And, you know, one of the the main assumptions that I bring, uh, or a bias that I bring to the conversation that I bring to when I perform treaty interpretation, or I say the best way forward, um, is that I'm someone who does want to see uh, space activities develop, I want to see space development, Uh, development of, of resources are a crucial part of deep space exploration and expanded human space flight. So because I have that innate kind of belief in me, or, or that's something that I want to see happen, I'm going to bring that, um, and that's going to inform how I do treaty interpretation. Uh, it, at least I'm open about it. Um, and, and and therefore, you should take what I say when I do treaty interpretation with a grain of salt, and also the same type of... Um, same type of stance when someone else performs treaty interpretation and says, I know what the law says. It means this. I know what the law says. It doesn't mean this. They're bringing a certain set of biases with, um, with themselves. The next thing I want to mention, um, is that, you know when we do talk up deeper issues in space law about what is a global commons uh, what is the you know global co- public goods whether outer space is a res communis or a res nullius or a res extra or these these latin phrases i want to point out first that these concepts go all the way back to roman property law and the code justinian of the 4th century they were incorporated into european law Um, in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries when they were looking around for where does, when we don't have law, we'll look to um, natural law. We'll look to sources and traditional sources of law. We'll incorporate it into our civil law in the European continent. I think that if we are uh, a thousand years from now doing things on celestial bodies, why would we be bound by the concepts from a thousand years ago? Um, we can come up with new rules, new concepts. It's great to be bound by the past. Lawyers often look to the past for precedents because we know what worked. Well, that contract worked in the past. Let's use it again. But we shouldn't necessarily be, um, you know, bound by Roman uh, Roman conceptions. There's good stuff there, but we also can invent new concepts as we go forward um so i'm impressed by the code justinian but we can come up with new uh, concepts themselves and i uh, the last thing i would mention is um this executive order and and the approaches they're not pushing back against work within copus they're not saying we're not going to go through the um you know in, international multilateral mechanisms they're they're saying We, we of course, are willing to go, uh, the U.S. is willing to continue in international negotiations, especially with um, the folks who have the same biases and assumptions and aspirations in space. So if you want to develop space resources, um, you know where we stand and we're willing also to work with you. That's how I kind of interpret it. And... saying yes there is the availability of negotiating new international uh you know UN agreements but there's other methods for developing governance frameworks and norms for space there isn't just the treaty um, if you get the U- UN treaty booklet the first you know 40, 30 40 pages is hard treaties but then after that is all these principles declarations later uh, instruments from copus uh, you know, refining what we mean by, what, what we mean by space law. There's, uh, you know, con- advanced concepts of launching states, advanced registration practices. So there isn't just treaty law, there's declarations, there's also uh, the availability of uh, bilateral, mini negotiations, and really not just top-up, but, um, or top-down, but bottom-up approaches, including things like the Hague Space Resources Governance Working Group, um, which you you can use that on any level you like. You can use it on the national level or the international level. Uh, So there's many ways forward besides a new international instrument. I'll leave it at that.
4: Thanks so much, Chris. We'll now move on to Australia. We've got Dr. Malcolm Davis down in Canberra, who is the senior analyst in defense strategy and capability at ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Malcolm, over to you.
3: Thanks, Annie. Um, Look, I'm coming at this not from the perspective of a space law perspective. I'm a strategic analyst, not a space law law expert. So let me look at it from the strategic analyst perspective. Um, I think that this uh, executive order is consistent with the Trump administration's uh, goal uh, to return to the moon under Project Artemis and to establish a sustainable presence on the lunar surface Uh, in part with the aim of going on to Mars in the 2030s. But they're also looking at what they can achieve on the lunar surface in terms of resource utilization in in part to support that Mars goal, but also for economic gain. And they recognize that uh, the growth of commercial space activity is a real thing. It's going to extend out to the moon and cislunar space. And it's not just the United States doing this, it's also other countries, including China. And so I think that what you're seeing is the establishment of a, a legal or a policy basis uh, for the United States um, being in a strong position in the 2020s and the 2030s to ensure that they can access and utilise space resources for national interest. And the Moon Treaty doesn't allow for that. Uh, The Moon Treaty would actually, if if the US were to align to the Moon Treaty, they haven't ratified it, but if they were to align to it and accept it as customary law, then the US would be denied that advantage. And here we have a problem because if you look at the Moon Treaty, it's pretty vague in terms of how you enforce States' uh, 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 adherence to the treaty, in particular to Article 11. Article 6 also uh, has a problem in the sense that it allows states to take lunar resources um, for scientific purposes. How do you define scientific purposes? Um, So I think that the US is doing the right thing from a national security perspective, from a defence and astropolitical perspective, in terms of establishing its policy um, arrangements now to be able to govern access to space resources and ensure that the US does have adv- have the advantageous aspect uh, access to those space resources. Because they recognize that China and Russia are going to be doing the same thing on the moon in the late 2020s and the early 2030s and beyond. And so they do not want to be disadvantaged in astro-strategic terms or astro-political terms uh, by having a, a, a situation whereby, There's one standard for the rest of the world, and there's another standard for China and Russia. Uh, And so I think that from a strategic analysis perspective, this makes eminent sense. The US has not ratified the Moon Treaty, so therefore they do not feel that they should be uh, bound to it as customary law. That's perfectly acceptable. At the same time, from, from a legal perspective, I think that there's nothing in this executive order that says the US will not entertain further discussions about regulatory arrangements or legal arrangements to govern the equitable use and access of space resources. So it's not cutting off legal discussions or legal um, frameworks that might emerge in the future. What it's saying is the Moon Treaty of 1979 is defunct and the US doesn't abide by it. Uh, And I think that's understandable because no, not a single major space actor has, has ratified the Moon Treaty. So I think where we go from here is that the U.S. encourages non-state actors, commercial operators, to prepare the ground for commercial space resource access. Uh, And at the same time, they can sit down and work with other countries to establish new regulatory arrangements uh, to maybe mitigate the risks of uncontrolled competition on the moon for um, uh, space resources. And I think in that sense, I don't have a problem with the executive order. I think it's the right step at the right time, given that the US is serious about returning to the moon and given that we know the Chinese and the Russians are looking at doing the same thing. And I'll end it there. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Malcolm. I'm now gonna throw over to Associate Professor Alice Gorman, who's a member of the Space Industry Association of Australia Uh, and is an associate professor in the College of Arts and Social Sciences at Flinders University. Alice, take it away.
0: Thank you, Annie. Well, I want to start with picking up a question you raised when we were talking about this podcast, which is what is our vision of the future of space for humanity? Back in the late 1890s and the early 20th century, Konstantin Tchaikovsky, who was one of the, the pioneers of the operation of rockets and a a visionary who outlined the nature of future space settlements and indeed talked about how mining in space might have been done, had this idea that living and working in microgravity and on other planets would reduce social and economic inequality for human societies and promote what was at the time... Uh, quite a lovely utopian vision of a a future of the world where nobody lived in poverty. And I think most people who work in the space world, even if they wouldn't ascribe to his view, would have some idea that utilising space resources is something that will bring benefit to humanity, however that comes about. So for me, this is the end game of everything that we're doing here. With the Executive Order, one of the critical things I think which others have mentioned is that it affirms the role of the Outer Space Treaty and of course one of the key concepts in that treaty is that space is not open to national appropriation, whether by, that's by a territorial claim or by use or by any other means. So for me it's very heartening that that has been reaffirmed in the Executive Order. It's interesting that the, while the Moon Agreement is rejected so thoroughly, there's actually a huge amount of overlap between the Outer Space Treaty and the Moon Agreement. So where the Moon Agreement has become unacceptable must be in those points where it differs radically from the Outer Space Treaty. And I think there's some really interesting things in the points that are different. So the Outer Space Treaty is very clear that the exploration and use of space should be for the benefit of all people. And the Moon Agreement obviously picks that up, but it goes into a little bit more detail. It actually says that the use and exploitation of outer space should promote higher standards of living and conditions of economic and social progress. And this should be done by sharing the benefits of that use and exploitation. So I could read into this that this further detail is part of the reason why people don't think the Moon Agreement is going to work. And I've heard a lot of people say that some of the issues with the Moon Agreement is that is lack of clarity. And I should say here that, that uh, as Chris said, we all bring our personal uh, experiences and biases to these conversations. My experience is working in mining industry on Earth Uh, in the context of environmental impact studies. So I'm someone who has had to interpret and implement legislation to do with resource extraction on the ground as it happens within a vast community of different people who are involved in that. So when I look at these treaties, I don't see a lack of clarity. I see a set of principles that are actually not that hard to translate into actions on the ground. And that if there was a will to do that, it could be done, particularly in terms of the international regime that the Moon Agreement suggests setting up to regulate uh, all activities on the surface of the Moon, and under the surface of the Moon when it comes to that. The other key issue I want to mention in very quickly is the idea of the common heritage of humanity, something that's mentioned only in the Moon Agreement. This implies that all of humanity are in fact stakeholders in the future of the moon. And if this were on Earth, we would say they have uh, then a right, any stakeholder has a right to have a say in what's going on. Obviously, there are a few challenges if you look at this from the point of view of the whole population on Earth. But there's a new concept in mining, actually it's not that new, but it's being applied quite effectively, the idea of the social license to operate. And this is one of these things that can be implemented outside of any legislation or any convention or treaty framework. And I think that the common heritage of humanity leads directly to the idea that the people of Earth have a right to have a say in what happens to the future of the moon. That's it for me.
4: Thank you, Alice. And now we move to our last initial pitch, if you like, from Professor Stephen Freeland Uh, Professor of International Law at Western Sydney University and member of the Board of Directors at the International Institute of Space Law. Stephen, the floor is yours.
5: Thank you, Annie, and hello, everybody. I hope everybody is safe and well uh, in these challenging times. Um, And uh, like you all, I'm sitting uh, at home uh, thinking about important issues like this. Uh, thank you, Annie, for putting this together and thank you, everybody, for your uh, wonderful comments. Uh, it makes it a bit easier for me to reflect on the important parts of this executive order. So um, it's tempting for some to <clears throat> look at the stridency um, of, and, and, and directness of the language, which I think is a positive, um, and come to all sorts of conclusions that this is a dramatic change in, uh, in the way the world moves forward. In fact, I see it as the opposite. I see, um, even though this will have some geopolitical ramifications, which we can talk about, um, I can see some great um, advantages uh, that stem from the fact that as Gabriel and Chris have highlighted, the United States has, has made its position absolutely clear. I don't think there's much that is particularly new in, so I don't see there being any dramatic shifts by the United States in its policy. I think if you read uh, the statement carefully and the order carefully, it reflects, I think, what the United States has been saying in COPWAS and other fora reasonably consistently the whole time. So I don't think there's anything new, but I think the clarity of their position is good. In fact, as everybody is aware, uh, we are moving towards more multilateral discussion on this topic since around 2015. Um, And it's important that every country, every stakeholder has the opportunity to state what its position is. Clearly, different countries will have different positions, but it's important, clearly, that the United States, as one of, if not the leading space power in the world at the moment, but it's important that their position is clear what are the things that I take out of this that I see with uh, a sense of optimism? Even though there are, of course, some geopolitical issues and there'll be some adverse responses from other countries initially. But one of the optimistic things I see, and it's been highlighted, is that we've heard in the past some references to space being lawless or wild, wild west, or anyone can do whatever they want. What this statement makes clear is that one of the major space powers in the world absolutely accepts, and they've never not accepted, but absolutely clarifies that there is law applicable to these and all activities in space. That law starts with the Outer Space Treaty, and there may be other law as well. And the Outer Space Treaty has a lot to say, as Alice said, that is relevant to the types of activities Dealing with exploration, exploitation, and utilization. So that is a positive. We can discount all of those, say space is lawless. Secondly, what's important is that um, there's clarity for industry. Th- this makes it clear to private enterprise that this is something the United States supports. As Malcolm says, There is a clear future for commercial space activities. We've already space is already highly commercial. Um, Of course, in this COVID nineteen situation, where world economies will change, including that of powerful countries like the United States, which of course has to divert a lot of funding to other areas to deal with the immediate crisis we face ourselves, the emphasis might be more on the fact that private enterprise has to step up even more in funding these sort of activities, and I think. From that perspective, the executive order encourages that as well. Um, the fact that the Moon Agreement is rejected so so clearly is, again, nothing new. Um, obviously, we all have personal biases and um, uh, I believe the Moon Agreement has a lot to offer to the member member states that are parties to the Moon Agreement. But I don't think the Moon Agreement really has ever seriously been pushed as reflecting customary international law by states or by the vast majority of people. I know Gabriel's referred to some scholars who might be saying that in journal articles, but I don't think that's been a serious assertion. Um, But the important point to come out of this is there's clarity of the US position. We need clarity from other countries. There's uh, an openness to multilateralism, even though we don't agree initially, multilateralism in terms of discussions will enable us to try to find this common path forward. The common path, it starts off with the Outer Space Treaty and the principles it reflects, and then we'll end up with a way forward that gives rise to all of the benefits. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Stephen. So um, now what we're going to do is have a discussion on all of this. I'm going to begin by trying to recap what it is I think that all of us have agreed more or less, and then where it is that there's some divergence in views. And for those watching, the way this will work is that um, people who want to say something will raise their hand in the Zoom, and then I will direct to them um, in case you're wondering how this happens. So to me, there are some positive things that we've all agreed on. The first one of those is that the the United States has reaffirmed that the Outer Space Treaty is the basis for law in outer space, that there is law in outer space, and that the principles in the Outer Space Treaty remain relevant and important to what we do in outer space. The second is that the US has expressed with great clarity what their position on resource utilization is, And that they've also said that they're willing to come to the negotiation table, which leads to the third key thing that I think we've all kind of hit on, which is that international negotiation here is key. And there may be some divergence there about whether that is broadly speaking with all nations or whether that is with like-minded nations in the way that they think about it. But nonetheless, that there at this point needs to be a time of discussion to resolve these issues and negotiate some ways forward which means that I think the key questions that come out of that, that we can focus on, are as follows. The first one is how do we see resources being used in space and to what extent is commercial enterprise to play that role? Um, I think that that's a, a lesser question. The bigger question then would be how ought that be governed and do our existing laws do the job or if not, and I think you know, generally the answer is maybe not, maybe yes. Um, what laws ought we have? What sort of social license needs to be incorporated into that? What sort of benefit sharing should be incorporated into that? And then the third key question that we might come to if we've got time is how do we enforce whatever laws we have? But I think that fundamentally that's a question that affects all international law, not just this law. Um, So with that said, I'm going to ask for anyone who wants to throw their hat in the ring for to open the discussion to raise their hand in the chat. And I think Malcolm, you were first.
3: Yep, I was quickest on on the draw there. Um, Look, I think in terms of answering your initial question is how do we use resources in space? Uh, I think it's early days yet in terms of understanding what resources are out there. We need to go back to the moon and, and do a proper survey in terms of just how much water is there uh, on the, uh, within the lunar regolith uh, that we can then extract and turn into rocket fuel or turn into oxygen and, and so on and so forth. Uh, we also need to ascertain uh, just how easy is it to use lunar resources to do space manufacturing, for example. Um, the ability to use additive manufacturing 3d printers in space to create hardware or create um, items that goods that people can use in space, I think is is one of the next big steps. I don't see um, space mining whether it's on the moon or on near-earth asteroids as bringing uh, resources back to earth. I see it more importantly as bootstrapping the growth of in space, um, economic structures and in-space manufacturing—that's where the real wealth is. If you go to a resource-rich asteroid that's got, got you know 20 gazillion dollars worth of gold on it, and you bring all that gold back to Earth, you just you just crash the market. So what you need to do is work out a business model whereby you utilise those resources in space to actually allow you to do more in space. And final point: you know we keep on talking that nuclear fusion power is 20 to 30 years away. Well, one of the crucial components of that is helium-3, and that's all on the Moon. So if we want to actually do nuclear fusion, which is clean, limitless energy that that allows us to essentially scrap fossil fuels and scrap fission reactors, then we need to go to the Moon, and we need to extract that. And in that sense, space
1: mining is a global good.
4: I think the next one who had their hand up was Chris. Chris, do you want to say something there?
1: Yes, certainly. While this conversation took up um, more steam at COPUS and really got underway, in the meantime, we've seen a number of space companies uh, go bankrupt that wanted to do asteroid mining. So deep space industries and planetary resources don't exist as asteroid mining companies anymore. Um, nevertheless, there is the idea, well, um, Gateway and Artemis, uh, a national space program with international partners, and then the European concept of the Moon Village. So. Uh, actually, you know, when I see when I see this executive order and, and and why it came out, it is saying these conversations have been, you know, put forth by futurists and, you know, um, uh, you know, space enthusiasts, but an executive order, not a national, not something on a lower level. Uh, executive orders are pretty rare on space. They're pretty rare. Um, and and to see an executive order that mentions the outer space treaty. That mentions Copus. I never thought I would see such a thing, but this executive order says it's time to get serious about uh, this concept and this topic. Um, and so I, I think that that's, you know, that that shouldn't be overlooked. It, I think I'd also like to say, all right, let's get to the actual. Um, I want to have a discussion about if if uh, if a commercial entity in partnership with a space agency is is doing something on the moon. Um, what basket of rights do they have? They can possess the lunar regolith and they can make a habitat out of it? Can they make uh, water and fuel and air? Can they sell that? Could they sell it to a national space agency? Can we use lunar resources to build a moon village or to build a habitat for um, Artemis? Uh, and, And what are the Elements of that. So there uh, could you know it could a national space agency do that, or, or uh, and if so, then could a commercial company do that? Where where does this uh, trigger people's responses of oh no that's appropriation because they're making money out of it? We have to you know develop what actually is this basket of rights that they're allowed to have. That's all.
4: Thank you, Chris. Um, Gabriel, I'll throw to you now.
2: Um, yeah, thanks. And and I sort of echo a lot of what Nakam and, and Chris said, um, so maybe I can be even briefer than I otherwise would. What really drove the executive order, I think, is, is many of the questions that you just asked, Annie. And, um, you know, just in terms of sort of why now, um, really the EO was driven by meeting operational needs of national space agencies. Um, In the sort of a near term um, as Malcolm you mentioned and Chris you did as well um, The Artemis program is is really ramping up It's looking to go to the moon um, and part of that if it's going to be done sustainably uh, is going to have to involve ISRU Um, It's not an accident for example, that about a week before the executive order was issued NASA um, issued a a detailed operational plan for Artemis Um, so this was the executive order was an attempt, um, at least in part, to provide some of the policy and legal clarity that that our operators in the form of NASA and their commercial partners really need to go ahead and do the missions they're planning. So I think that naturally leads into the point, Nakam, that you made, too, which is that this is very, very early days. No one has, in fact, actually extracted or used resources from space yet. Um, All we ever have gotten back or used from outer space is those small amounts of samples that the United States and Soviet Union brought back from their lunar missions. So to to answer your question, Annie, about what are the next rules we need to make and where do we go from here? I don't know. That doesn't mean we don't need rules. I think we almost certainly do need some kinds of rules to meet operational need to allow um, this, this kind of activity to go forward. Um, but until we actually do it, it's very hard to, to draft a set of rules or some sort of comprehensive system in the abstract. So the perspective we've tried to approach this from is, what questions need to be answered now? Who needs certainty and what do they need certainty about? So we, found like, we felt like it was time to provide some general clarity and certainty and policy direction to meet the immediate operational needs. But in terms of sort of next step rules, um, we can imagine some that might need to be coordinated amongst cooperating countries who go to the moon and work together on things like this. And I think you'll probably be hearing about things like that from us in the relatively near future. But in terms of these big picture issues, things like, you know, how would, how would humanity benefit from vast wealth being found in outer space? It's just not, it's just not there. We don't know what we're talking about um, and therefore we wouldn't know what rules to write. So I do think we need to keep in mind sort of where we are in terms of this industry um, and what sorts of information we actually bring to solve these problems, because I think largely we're still operating in the vacuum. So we need to be humble about what we can and can't do right now. Thanks.
4: Thank you, Gabriel. I think that um, you raise a really interesting point and Malcolm and Chris, I think where we've got to there is that we think that there are many things that we'll be able to do with space resources, whether they be manufacturing or you know, technologically based, we think that that's going to be very necessary for the projects we have in mind, like the Artemis program and broader space exploration. But because we've got that mismatch where we have ideas of what might be possible, but we can't yet do it, there is that issue of how do we then form law around it? How do you regulate technology? And I think that this is an issue that is not unique to space. I think it's an issue that applies to social media regulation and to a lot of um, emerging cyber technologies as well. And it's, it's a question that I think we all have to grapple with. Um, so I'm, I'm just gonna leave that summary there. And I think next up is Alice. Alice, are you ready to go? Um,
0: yes, I mean, I think these are really interesting questions. And I wanna pick up on uh, something Chris said about how do we know how far to push, like how to define what are the rights and interests of people are wanting to exploit lunar resources and there's one main target at the moment everybody is interested in the water ice at the lunar poles uh, in the permanently shadowed regions because this is a resource that could be used for fuel it could be used for in situ resource utilization um, oxygen water a whole bunch of things that lunar future lunar settlements might need and how do we regulate that? So so here in Australia, uh, water rights are very heavily regulated. We have a whole system uh, set up in in order to allow people to access water for agricultural and industrial activities and and of course regular residents for uh, use in domestic situations. So we have some analogies on earth uh, around things like this. Water I think is particularly interesting because it's only been in, in recent years that it's been recognised as a resource that could substantially alter a lunar economy. But I think we should look at it as a, in a solar system perspective. It used to be thought water was rare in the solar system. Now we know that there's actually quite a lot of it about. So I think we need to be assessing the nature and extent of the resource, who has rights to use it in the context of all of the water we have uh, in terms of a resource which at this point is non-renewable.
4: Thank you, Alice. And I think Stephen, you're next.
5: Thank you, Annie, and thanks, everybody, for your comments. Uh, Just a couple of observations. Um, This is not a unique situation in terms of how do we form a way forward to exploit the natural resources of space. Um, As everybody is aware, you could think of the geostationary orbit as a natural resource. It's so defined by the ITU. We were able to utilise that, but it took a long time to get the rules agreed. It's a different situation because, uh, um, as you've all made the point, lunar resource extraction in a significant way is a long way away with GEO. We were actually there already, able to utilise it in some way, and we had to react to that and form the rules, but it still took took some time and we've got a reasonably um, effective, not perfect uh, multilateral way of governing that Um, in terms of resource extraction I agree with everybody I think we've got time on our hands but um, the the point is we all agree there's law we all agree the outer space treaty and any other applicable law is irrelevant Um, what people don't necessarily agree with is what that law is and what it is currently and uh, some references have been made by um, Alice, I think, to non-appropriation. You could pick up 10 articles and get 10 different views about what Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty says. And so, uh, yes, we have time, but I still think it's important that we start working out, uh, if the Outer Space Treaty is relevant, as clear it is, we need to start working out how our different interpretations might somehow be um, discussed such that we can find a way, a common understanding or as common as possible about some of these issues, the major principles. I agree with Gabriel and Malcolm that, and Chris that we've got time for the, the more detailed legal framework, certainly we do. We can't do it in hypotheticals, but we already know that the major principles will be relevant we need to be able to understand or have a common understanding about what we think that means. And I think the discussions uh, that have been preempted already at COPOS and other fora, I think, will be important to help us try to find a way forward and bring the obvious differences that we have in interpretation to some fora where perhaps we can find some path that most people will accept by, by a, as being the applicable way forward. Thanks.
4: Thank you, Stephen. I wanted to ask, with that in mind and bearing in mind that we are not copious here on Saturday morning on Zoom, uh, but that question of how can we reach a common understanding on the key principles that might be the basis for the laws that we would have to govern resource use, and bearing in mind Alice's, I think, excellent point that not all resources are equal, Some resources are going to be more plentiful than others and that might need to be taken into consideration. But I wanted to throw back to you all and ask that really thorny question of what sort of principles do you think, hypothetically, ought to be the principles that um, underlie any kind of regulation or laws on resource use if they were to become multilateral? And I think, um, you know, as some ideas there, How might we think about things like benefit sharing, um, ethics, is this a first in best dressed kind of thing, social licence, those sorts of issues and balancing that with everything else? Alice, I think you were first in.
0: This relates both to your current question and what Stephen was just saying too. Uh, On Earth, where we have changes in law around environmental management, people often say, oh, look, we don't know how this is going to work out. We'll just let it play out in the courts. And I can tell you, court was never a place I wanted to end up when I was working on these projects. But there was actually a mechanism, maybe a very expensive and time-consuming one, to actually nut out what things meant and get a resolution through the legal system. Well, we don't actually have that mechanism set up for space as yet. So I think this means working out what the principles are and getting them right now is even more important. Because... We can't, do, we can't do this like we do it on Earth.
4: Thank you, Alice. Malcolm, you're up next.
3: Yeah, look, I think um, obviously you know, we talk about how long we've got before we have to really sort of deliver the goods in terms of a legal structure. Um, I think probably we have at most 10 years, which is not a long time in terms of capability development and hardware development and mission planning and so forth. Um, but I think what worries me is that if we go on the principle of possession is nine tenths of the law, um, if we get to the late 2020s and we have a presence by the Americans and the Chinese and maybe the Russians and maybe the Europeans on the high ground in Cislunar space, there will be a rush uh, to control resources that are identified. Uh, and then those that are in the dominant position will set the law. And so I think that it's going to be very difficult to avoid that, no matter how earnest our intentions in terms of creating legal documents now um, that could be overridden uh, as we get closer to the point whereby we're actually digging up lunar regolith and actually extracting it and using it for things so i think that's my point there is that uh, we do need to be cognizant of human nature and the and the role of the nation state or the role of the corporate actor acting on behalf of the nation state to be able to override any good intentions that are coming out of legal discussions that we might undertake now.
5: That's my thoughts there.
4: Thank you Malcolm. Stephen did you have your hand up?
5: And just reacting to Malcolm's uh, point, I mean obviously um, in any uh, society where you have uh, a legal framework uh, that will not necessarily stop bad behaviour if people want to engage in bad behaviour. I'm not suggesting that uh, uh, that's the the point here but the Outer Space Treaty that everybody has referred to and, and everybody is reaffirming as the centrality or the starting point. Um, has served us really well for the period that it's been we just recently celebrated its, uh, its 50th anniversary and um, by and large, uh, despite all of the huge variety of things that are being done in space. And that are being contemplated, including um, these sorts of activities, but not only limited to that. Uh, by and large, spaces work reasonably well, notwithstanding all of the differences, and notwithstanding the challenges, and notwithstanding the uh, disagreement on some of the interpretive principles applied. Um, and I think uh, it's in everybody's common interests to ensure that at some point we maintain some sem- sem- a sense of stability uh, in terms of the way we move forward because there's always the risk that um, things will go pear-shaped if uh, there is bad behaviour by whoever, um, crossing lines that shouldn't be crossed in, in any way, shape or form. And, of course, the idea of resource exploitation um, on Earth, has connotations that have sometimes been negative, as opposed, as well as positive, in terms of the geopolitics, um, and we have to avoid that being the case. So I agree with uh, Malcolm, you know, that you we we can't stop uh, people um, and, and acting in the way that they consider to be their best interests, but we must at the same time emphasize that, in fact, your best interests are by and large um, best served by some common understandings, common principles, and a common starting point, even though we have different capabilities, even though we obviously have different intentions and different ambitions. Uh, I think that's really important. I think law, uh, whether it's in whatever form or frameworks and multilateralism and people sitting out and talking, even if they disagree, trying to find a way is ever so more important with issues like this and i think the united states uh, executive order notwithstanding its strident language i think does does not in any way detract from that and i think that's a positive thing Um, but of course in the in the short term there will be some negative reaction from other countries but we had that when the 2015 legislation was passed in the united states there was negative reaction and yet a few short excuse me a few short years later, we're at the point where we uh, we were about to sit down and engage in multilateral discussions on the topic. So, um, uh, language is one thing, but I think in the end, the understanding of common common interests is another. Thank you. Sorry for going over time.
4: No problem. I think in some ways, um, just to pick up on that, going back to Chris's initial point about ancient Roman law and whether or not that is still applicable. I mean, ancient Rome had the benefit of being able to enforce their law by going and killing people when they didn't obey it. Um, More recently, we've sort of thought that's not a great way of doing it. But the question remains, how do we get people to comply with regulation and with law? I think one of the great benefits of international law is that it does require group buy-in, which means that. Uh, The group that forms the law has to spend so long talking about it that you'd hope by the time everyone signs it, they're aligned in their ways of thinking, which also goes back to Chris's point around biases of thought um, and being like minded in a broad sense rather than in the specific executive order sense. And so maybe that is a strength of international law, but then again, it does require also domestic law to enforce it. Um, That being said, I think Gabriel is back with us and was next in line. Gabriel, did you have something to add?
2: Yeah, um, to, to I can sort of try to answer both of those questions. Um, first, in terms of sort of what rules do we need uh, now? Are there other additional rules we need to start thinking about? I would turn the question around a little bit and say, we have law. We've all reaffirmed the importance of the Outer Space Treaty. So which provisions of the Outer Space Treaty do we need to look to in particular to provide guidance for what we're about to do in terms of space resource utilization? Um, You all know how much I love um, Article 9 of the Outer Space Treaty, and in particular, the due regard and non-interference principles in there. Um, I think it's a fair and very good question for nations and private sector actors and all of us to start asking, for example, what does due regard mean if we're going to have multiple actors going, um, I think, Alice, as you said, towards uh, the South Pole of the Moon, these geographically constrained areas, Um, with potentially water ice um, in close proximity to each other. What does due regard look like there? What does non-interference and consultations look like there? Um, What does, for example, um, what what does transparency look like when you're doing space resource utilization? How much information should you and do you need to share with the international community? Um, Potentially when you're doing mixed government and private sector activities. Um, So I think we we frankly have our hands full answering the questions that are already in front of us with the rules we already have, right? Those legally binding rules contained in the Outer Space Treaty and all the other uh, potentially applicable um, international space law, they do provide guidance. And it's not like we're, we're sort of operating in, you know, in the Wild West, as Stephen said, we're not. Um, so I think we need to figure out how to leverage the tools that we have to answer, as I said before, the sort of immediate operational needs, things like proximity operations on the lunar surface, things like notification regimes, Those are the kinds of questions that we really do need to be thinking about instead of these sort of, you know, medium to long term
1: questions.
4: Thank you, Gabriel. And Chris, you're next.
1: Yeah, I mean, Gabriel pointed out a lot of things that I agree with, you know, uh, this distinction of um, issues we need to solve in the short term versus the long term. The example that I use to explain to people is imagine if people in the 1980s were trying to draft a treaty regulating the Internet. That would have just been way too soon. So, and what what ideas could they have caught brought up, and basic concepts could they have imagined? We don't have the activity. So, it, it, so it, maybe we can't ha- clearly delineate all the rights and obligations and what's prohibited and what's permitted. But certainly, uh, understanding that we, as a society, want to do this, and that it's permitted to go and do that, and then. Then we have something that we can start with um i let me think here it the next thing is if the law is unclear because we just have basic principles we have due regard uncertain what that really means or how it applies to this particular idea that was not thought about in 97. so one way to make the law clear because i i'm you know don't trust my understanding of what due regard means or harmful contamination Um, or even non-appropriation. How does non-appropriation really apply to space resources? All these are basic principles from the Outer Space Treaty. So if the law is unclear, it lacks specificity, then we need a little bit more clarity through the creation of a new law. Um, And lastly, oh, it looks like my internet connection is a little bit slow. Hope I don't cut out. Um, You know... I think that on the moon, millions and millions of miles from home, national rivalries are maybe a bit um, abstract. If there are individuals working on the moon, um, sent from different states, they're going to look off and see the moon, see the Earth way off in the distance, and realize that um, that they need to rely on each other, regardless of nationality. So. I really think that the the possibility for conflict between actors on the moon or rivalries over locations and resources will be actually really attenuated. Um, We see that already on space station um, or in other international endeavors that's not human spaceflight. We'll see that on the moon as well.
4: Yeah, in some ways I think we might draw an analogy to Antarctica and the cooperation that individuals find it possible to have even in the midst of geopolitical struggles. Um, But at the same time, it's not easy. And as you say, there are many things we don't yet know. Alice, I'd love to hear your thoughts.
0: I think, yeah, there's some interesting issues here. Like, how do we regulate and stop people doing bad things when they're so far away? We can't necessarily even see what they're doing. I'm a huge fan of the idea we might actually have a citizen science Um, surveillance mechanism, uh, perhaps a lunar orbiter that is gathering information about surface activities uh, for the public so that people on the lunar surface can be accountable to the public, so an independent source of information. I'm sure there's a heap of problems with that but that's just the direction I've been thinking in. Things like proximity operations, some of this is actually going to be dictated by particular circumstances on the lunar surface. So We haven't yet solved the problem of lunar dust. So this automatically, um, at this point in time, suggests certain limits of how close you can be to other installations, equipment, operations, and this will change as technology changes as well. So we could probably use the specific things about lunar conditions to, to kind of map out some of the limits of this stuff now understanding that this all of this could change radically uh with new technology and once people start doing things.
4: Thank you Alice. Chris um your hand is up is that a residual hand or is that a fresh hand? I think that was a residual hand but Stephen has jumped in.
5: Thanks Annie um just a point and and uh, I, I'm absolutely conscious that uh that the position of many is we don't want to take things from the Moon Agreement. But, but the point I would make about the Moon Agreement is that uh, the way it was expressed completely recognises what we're saying now. What we're saying now is uh, let's deal with the issues, but there are some, due regard, non-appropriation, what does the Outer Space Treaty have to say on various issues. Let's deal with those issues now, but let's not, in the hypothetical, deal with the really detailed issues that's exactly the way the moon agreement was ultimately framed in that uh, the idea under that treaty of a regime was only really to be developed by the parties to that treaty um, and the the exploitation was about to become feasible now of course you could argue what that meant so it would be foolhardy or, or perhaps a waste of energy and time and not really lead to any Concrete agreement. If we try to go be too ambitious too quickly about whatever framework, but so I think we're all in violent agreement on that, um, and I think that's a good thing. But it means there still is a lot of work that needs needs to be done in the short shorter term to at least understand the fundamentals of uh, how this process might move forward. And um, thanks.
4: Thank you, Stephen. So I think where we've got to is more or less that we do see commercial um, exploitation of resources playing a role in the future. We're not yet sure exactly what that looks like, and as a result, we're not yet sure exactly what the international law we ought to have looks like. But there are some key principles that should inform that, and they may be found in the Outer Space Treaty um, in particular. And in terms of enforcing those rules, I think we've kind of reached a point of saying, well, that's an issue for everything and and sort of a bridge to be crossed if and when it becomes a problem. But perhaps, as Chris has mentioned, the the proximity of individuals working under difficult circumstances on the moon may mean that those problems are not as large as we think they are when we look at them from a broader geopolitical standing. So with that in mind, I would like to ask for um, concluding statements from everybody. If there are any areas we've uh, yet to cover, I think someone's just put something in the chat. Let's have a look. Ah, we've had a very important question come through about Gabriel, is that your cat? I believe it's actually a dog, but maybe you can address that in your concluding statements as well um, and give us an introduction. So um, that being said, I think we'll go through in the same order. We'll start with Gabriel right through, finishing with Stephen. And I suppose at this point, feel free to conclude what you've said, but also raise things that you want people to think about, look at, and do. I'll give you each, um, I think Gabriel's disappeared, so I'll, I'll keep talking. Uh, I'll give you each, we'll say maybe um, four minutes, but I'll, I'll be a little bit lax on that, um, given that we're, we're reaching the end of it. Here we go. Uh, Gabriel, are you ready?
0: Yeah,
2: thanks. Um, and first I should introduce um, my assistant, this is Wendell. Um, this is our puppy who doesn't want to be alone. Um, so, in conclusion, I think everything we've said today, this whole conversation has just been wonderful. Um, there is significant agreement, I think, not just amongst us, um, but I found that the same kind of agreement and same kind of convergence happens every time I talk about this issue. Um, even in you know, with people you might not think that we would necessarily agree with. We had a conference, um, a UN sponsored conference in Moscow a couple years ago, um, where we talked about space resources and a huge variety of of speakers there. And we really all came to, you know, 80% agreement, frankly, on the sort of immediate challenges and the next steps forward. So I think space resources brings out a lot of strong emotions with people um, individually and for countries. Um, but the reality is is that when you focus on, I keep saying operational need, but when you focus on what's happening now and what are the questions we really have to answer, um, there's really nowhere near as much disagreement as you might otherwise think. So just to conclude in terms of the executive order, to return back to that, um, the executive order isn't something that should surprise people. It isn't something new or big or different. It really is a, just a bringing together of things we've been saying for a number of years in a way to provide guidance, not only to ourselves, uh, but some clarity to the international community and our private sector actors. Um, I hear the dog barking in the background. Um, so, so we're not looking to, to sort of change the world here. We're looking to provide a path forward for our own operators, for those who we want to work with. Um, And we really do want to do this um, with as much of the world as we can. Um, I think many of you will will hear and see over the next weeks and months um, further conversations from me, from the United States, um, trying to figure out how we can start answering some of these questions, many of the interesting ones we've identified here, how we can answer them, how we can enable these kinds of activities um, in the near future. So this is just the start of a conversation, right? This isn't an attempt to stop conversation. The executive order was very much not that. It was an attempt to create a starting point for the next set of conversations that we really do need to have.
4: Thank you, Gabriel. We'll now move to Chris.
1: Yeah. Um, You know, I'll say some things that, you know, maybe not everyone will agree with um, or like, but, but, you know, if, well, let's let's take a first to look at how space has happened for fifty or sixty years. Um, yeah, space exploration and space science was pushed forward by space agencies, but the commercial industry, you know, really pushed forward with telecommunications, Earth observation, et cetera, et cetera. Geo is commercialized. It was the commercial industry that 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 really pushes forward our capabilities in space. And so if it it is the commercial industry that pushes forward and progresses, uh, lunar development and use of space resources, I'm fine with it. Um, if, if, uh, if an American company or an Australian company or a Chinese or a Russian company is very successful using space resources, I won't see it as, um, some type of threat to the rule of law. Um, and if one company can do it, that means that the capabilities of all humanity have been pushed forward. We're now a, a species that can use space resources. So there are there are certainly challenges to that type of future if uh, if it's done in a way which is rivalrous or which gives rise to con- conflicts of interests. But. In principle, I could be quite optimistic about it and say that this is a future that we indeed do want. Um, Because we agree that the rule of law does and can continue to govern in space. Um, Yeah, I think I I would, I guess I kind of conclude with that. This is how these things develop. Um, It won't necessarily, it's not necessarily something that we should be terrified if if a company is, is very successful doing this. People organize themselves in many different avenues and fashions. They organize themselves as states and they organize themselves as companies. We're all just people.
4: Thank you, Chris. Malcolm.
1: Yeah, look, I follow on from what Chris and Gabriel
3: said. I think they're both really excellent points. Um, I'm a glass half full guy when it comes to space. Uh, I might sound fairly negative in terms of comments as a strategic analyst, but I'm, I'm pretty positive about where we're headed in space. And I think that, we do have time to iron out some of these issues over the next 10 years to establish the rules of the road, shall we say, as we begin to um, go up to the moon and, and, and begin to access um, space resources and find out how much is out there, how do we use it and how what's the business model for developing profit. I think there's nothing wrong with that. I do think there are potential challenges ahead in terms of um, the, the complexity of major power competition in the in the at the end of this decade and beyond, I think that will largely depend on just how intense U.S.-China strategic competition is uh, by 2030, and who's in a dominant position. So yeah, we'll see what happens there. I think the other factor that we need to think about is it's not just a, a, this discussion about resource exp, extra, extraction and space law is not just a discussion for uh, lawyers or commercial companies. There's also, you know, the security dimension in terms of how do space forces evolve in the coming years? The US Space Force is something new. Uh, maybe that will have a, an influencing um, uh, uh, sort of role on how this debate uh, goes as the US Space Force develops and as China and Russia develop their own um, uh, equivalents uh, further. So I think that, you know, We're still in an early uh, period at this point. We still have time to develop this dialogue and develop this issue, Uh, but there are some real challenges ahead. There's some real uncertainties and we'll see how it all develops by the end of this coming decade. I'll finish there.
4: Thank you, Malcolm. Alice.
0: So I've got one comment and two questions that I'd like to finish with. My comment is, as I have been advocating for some time, if we are going to do resource extraction on the moon, then we need an environmental impact regime to manage that. My two final questions. So the Outer Space Treaty and the Moon Agreement are very clear that the exploration and use of space resources should be the benefit for the benefit of all peoples. So what kinds of benefits do the people of Earth want? We should ask them. And what kind of activities or outcomes from lunar surface uh, resource extraction would not provide any benefits? We should have a clear idea of where we don't want to go, as well as a clear idea of where we do want to go.
4: Thank you, Alice. And Stephen?
5: Thank you, Annie, and thanks, everybody, for your final comments as well. Um, the I noted that the executive order also has directed the Secretary of State in, I think, 180 days to, uh, to give a report on um, how the, Depart- the, the State Department is moving forward with the various discussions, the joint statements or whatever. And so I think that will also be an interesting document to see, as Gabriel says, how um, the United States is moving forward for the operational requirements. Um, I think this discussion has um, fortified again um, that uh, this is another step in the conversation. Um, It was uh, a little unexpected by some perhaps, but uh, the fact that it's come out, I think it can be viewed as a positive rather than a negative. People may not necessarily agree with everything that's in the executive order, but it is... As, as Gabriel says, another step in this conversation. The conversation has to continue and, and will continue. I think there's general agreement um, amongst the community of nations within COPOS that this issue is now one that requires and demands focus and re- requires and demands uh, people sitting down and trying to work out commonality. I think there is a lot more commonality. I completely agree with Gabriel's point. There's a lot more commonality on this point than there is disagreement. It's just that clearly because of the emotive element of this and some of the, geopolit- the historical geopolitical stances that countries take, um, this sometimes raises the, ratchets up the language that's being used on this issue. But there's a lot of commonality. There are significant benefits to be derived from the utilisation of resources. We've done it already and no doubt we can do it again. I think Alice raises some excellent points though in terms of working out if we can do 500 things regarding space, we at some point will need to work out, perhaps prioritise what are the things that we should be doing for the benefit not only of the national interests of the particular countries involved, but on a much broader scale, the benefits of humanity generally. But uh, resource exploitation, exploration and utilisation, five or 10 years ago in the international arena was something that people just did not want to talk about. Now, everybody, it's part of the standard conversation, along with some of the other major issues in space. And I think that's a positive thing, we have some time, we don't have um, uh, unlimited time, but we had some time to try to work it out. And I think I'm, I'm with Malcolm, we have to be glass half full on this. I'm perhaps glass three quarters full, that at, because it's in our interests, we will find a way forward. Um, obviously there'll be tough discussions, tough discussions amongst the major space-faring nations, but in fact, amongst everybody at Koppelos and elsewhere. But in the end, um, we will all recognise that there, there will be ways forward that make sense, that suit national, international interests, and, uh, and hopefully will get us to respect space even more. I mean, what we want to avoid is just thinking of space as a place that we can exploit totally. We all understand space is so much more than that. But this will help us further define the way that we think of space as something that will help humanity as it moves forward thank you
4: thank you Stephen and thank you to all of you so much for spending your time on this Easter long weekend joining together for this discussion on space resources I personally as the biggest nerd ever can't think of a better thing I could be doing except maybe eating chocolate and I'm going to go and do that shortly I personally feel extremely optimistic, particularly in the wake of this conversation, about not just the, our, um, our use of space and our enjoyment of space and cooperation going forward, but also the ability of individuals to work together to find common ground and to work through issues as they arise. I think that this has been an example of one of those sorts of things. I'd also like to... Um, say a particular thank you again to each of you. Thank you, Gabriel, Chris, Malcolm, Alice and Stephen for your time. I will put links to the bios of each of these people um, in the comment uh, in the little description under this video and so if you wanted to get in contact or um, or look them up you should be able to do that by following that link and to wherever it leads you'll be able to find them. And finally um, I would advise anyone who's interested in this to go away and actually read the outer space treaty. Um, if you're daring enough, read the moon agreement. Uh, it's, you know, it's countercultural. if ever there was a space treaty that could be considered. So it's quite radical. And honestly, I think, um, as I've said before, Australia is very hipster for having signed the thing, but, um, go and read all of the space law, the five major treaties and anything else you can find. And if you'd like further resources on the topic, um, after we've concluded this conversation I will ask all of our speakers to provide some top resources and they'll also be linked in the description under this video. So there is no shortage of material for which uh, with which you can nerd out over this Easter long weekend and through the rest of this pandemic. Thank you so much everybody, Um, it's been absolutely wonderful.
2: Thanks Annie. Thank
5: you. Thank Thank you very much. Thanks Annie Annie and everybody. Stay safe. Bye everyone.
0: Bye.
4: Bye bye. You've been listening to the Space Junk Podcast. If you'd like to know more, there are links in the description to further reading, and you might also enjoy the conversation article, which I co authored with Professor Stephen Freeland in the week after we recorded this panel discussion. You can find it, like all things, by Googling my name and the conversation. And to get in contact, you can send me an email on thespacejunkpod at gmail.com or look me up on social media.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.